Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 72 of the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This episode is with Jennifer Crooks, who's directing Ghostlight Theatrical's newest production, From Kings to Controllers. She also helped to develop the piece. It opens March 4th and runs through the 19th in the Ballard Underground space. Get more information and tickets at ghostlighttheatricals.org. This is a really fascinating conversation about feminism and gaming. We touch on Gamergate a little bit. And this play is just, it sounds absolutely incredible. And I hope you, dear listeners, can make it out to the Ballad Underground to check it out. Thank you to everyone who has donated already to our podcast and also our sponsors. If you're interested in joining the awesome ranks of donors and sponsors, please visit theatricalmustang.podbean.com. There are a couple of buttons you can click, and you can also always send us an email at theatricalmustang at gmail.com. All right, everyone, please enjoy episode 72 with Jennifer Crooks. So I'm sitting here with Jennifer Crooks, who's directing From Kings to Controllers, opening at Ghostlight. I'm so excited to hear about this show. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So where did the seed, the spark, the idea for the show originate? Um, the idea for the show actually started uh, Rob Burquist, who uh, is the managing director over at Ghostlight, um, had invited me to do their Battle of the Bards last year, which is their major fundraiser, and they basically, you sort of create a proposal of like a 20-minute piece, and um, they battle it out to see what gets a full production. And at the time, um, while I was sort of stewing around what could be a possible idea, because they usually try and focus on something that's like a classical work of literature, um, at the time, what was happening was Gamergate started <laughs> making its way a little bit more and more right. into and for the, the consciousness. Who might not know what Gamergate is? What's your elevator little? Well, my elevator speech is it's really a matter of depending on who you ask. Absolutely. So it's um, it could be on one side of the argument is that it's really. Um, discrimination against women in the gaming industry, and if you go to the other side of the argument, it's really about truth and journalism and ethics and journalism within the gaming industry. So those are the two that are sort of battling it out, and a lot of the times when it happens, when you kind of <laughs> find yourself down that rabbit hole of um, commenting or whatever else, it becomes a lot of really conflated issues altogether. Absolutely. Um, and so this was all happening, and I have to admit, I'm not really a gamer, um, but I found it fascinating that it's this little microcosm of um, sort of having new, what you think are new people coming into a world that's predominant, uh, predominantly uh, focused around white male, <laughs> male individuals. Um, whether it's the characters in the games or whether it's the people creating the games or whether it's the play- people playing the games. Um, and so... That was happening, and I found it really kind of fascinating as you read both sides of it um, and started listening to more of Anita Sarkeesian's Feminist Frequency, um, her uh, web blogs. uh, 
my background is kind of on the antithesis of gaming, and it's really um, Shakespeare is my background when it comes to theater. And um, I sort of found this strange overlap with one of Shakespeare's long-form poems, which is The Rape of Lucrece. Mm. Um, and how there's, a, there's violence against women, particularly one woman in the poem. And a lot of the issues within the gaming industry at the time were mm. violence against women in, in games. And so there were these sort of two, two worlds that I started drawing connections to. And the idea, I guess my elevator pitch to shorten it now, because <laughs> this has been many, many floors of elevator pitch, is, um, <laughs> is really when it comes to violence against women, it's been a form of entertainment for a long time. And the way that we receive that entertainment might have changed from the standpoint of long-form poetry that was performed in some Duke's salon to multimedia gaming. And yet, so the modes which we experience it or the, which we experience entertainment have changed, but the storytelling that we find entertaining has not. Um, this is all fascinating. <laughs> I'm completely drawn in. And there's sort of, there is something very, if you read some of the, the threats that women have received, I, I just finished Felicia Day's memoir. Mm -hmm. uh, it is sort of, it makes you, it reminds me of, you know, Greek mythology stuff from high school or oh, middle yeah. school, right? It's this absolutely, everyone is so passionate about what they're doing, about their side of it, and it's... Uh, it's kind of creepy. It kind of harkens back to a world where there was no rules a little yeah. bit. Um, and it becomes this thing where assault and violence against women, it, it, when you add the idea of this electronic or digital media or just digital mm. communication, it makes those threats almost easier. <laughs> because there's, there's no this anonymous, right? Yeah. There's like yeah. this anonymous factor to it. And so... Um, you know, you sort of like throw them away, and I, um, uh, I guess one of the kind of inspirations for the play was how easy it is, um, how all of those sets were happening to folks like Brianna Wu and Zoe Quinn from, from, you know, the doxing that they were experiencing right. and the online threats, and you know, some people would come back, and I guess one of the articles I read, you know, one of the guys who was saying a lot of these comments, um, then revealed who he was and said, oh, it was just a joke. <laughs> and the fact, like wow. it was some weird performance <laughs> performance art that he was doing and that he was just an improver or something and that it's all a joke or whatever that he was doing. And so how desensitized we are. And there's a part in the actual poem of the Rape of Lucrece there, where um, Terquinius, who who assaults, who, who does the assault on um, Lucrece, most of the poem takes up on like, well, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, but I have to do this, I have to do this. Like, there's something, you know, and finding this justification for either making the threat that, oh, it's just a joke, or finding this justification in kind of like society's ways of thinking around the larger issues of, like, rape culture. Um, 
you know, it, I think we like to think that we've come a long way, but <laughs> it's not always the case. Maybe we haven't come that far. Yeah. Right. So, Battle of the Bards, what was the 20-minute form of this play? Um, so, I had worked with Stacy Flood, who's the playwright of this, and we basically came up with, like, a little bit of the first... Um, what's kind of become the first act of the play or a part of the first act and kind of introducing the characters. Um, you know, one is Liv, a female game designer who decides to, um, she doesn't like the direction that the game that she was helping to build um, was going and so kind of does her own gorilla thing to it <laughs> uh, wow. to bring the, bring the woman victim to the forefront so that she's really the hero of the story and not being avenged by her by the heroic male character right. in the game. And so that was sort of the proposition of it um, that we did for that 20-minute piece. And, um, you know, it's expanded to sort of see a little bit more what those repercussions are as we've kind of, as we've expanded the show. I think one of my biggest fears during Battle of the Bards was, and I've tried not to, I don't, because Gamergate, uh, hashtag Gamergate is such a conflated issue, um, we tried to, avoid a little bit of that language because regardless of whether you take out the ethics and gaming of that whole argument, um, there's still very much issues of threats being, discrimination threats being made against women in this industry. Um, and originally I was thinking, oh, if we call it Gamergate, you know, maybe everything will be solved by, by, by the time we do, a, or it won't be an issue um, by the time we actually put on a full have the opportunity to put on a full performance of it, but, you know, just a month ago, um, I think Anita Sarkeesian was invited to um, speak at uh, I think it was South by Southwest and they mm. had to shut down her panel discussion because of threats um, and I think a few other, or maybe it was Brianna Wu and Anita Sarkeesian and they had to threat, uh, shut that down because they were there were threats in the um, people putting on the um, panel or that that uh, section of South by Southwest just couldn't assure their safety. Right. <laughs> um, and how unfortunate is that? Yeah. Uh, and a little brought down a notch, but it's important. It's important <laughs> for folks to know about this yeah. and, and what a great spark um, to light a fire under this creative process. So what has the process been like working with Stacy? Do you, um, starting as a director with a playwright and having them in mind, that's a bit of a different process, perhaps, than uh, a director that's pitching a show that's already been written or having a show proposed to them by a company. So, can yeah, you speak to that? oh, definitely. Um, you know, I think, like, as an actor, I tend, I, I've come into shows that are, I fair, I'm fairly used to, like, working with scripted shows. However, when I step into my, like, director shoes, I tend to do shows that are fairly devised, so we start with <laughs> absolutely nothing. <laughs> and just and do a lot of like found um, found text work and things like that and so you know I, we had this um, I had this idea of you know I don't know how exactly these two things are parallel of this long form poem and the issues of surrounding women in the gaming industry um, but I thought there was some something to explore there and so um, Rob, when I when he asked me to do Battle of the Bards, he part of it is being paired up with other artists and trying to have explore new work, and so it was the first time that I worked with Stacy on that, and it was just a 
fantastic process. He has he has um, some background in in not necessarily game development, but kind of like the computer world side of sure. things, which I don't necessarily have. And so we had a lot of conversations back and forth and he would go and sort of write something and then give us some text to work with and we'd explore that both physically um, as well as sort of story line. He'd come in and sit in on some of our rehearsal processes and um, at least for the 20-minute Battle of the Bards um, and kind of go back and rewrite things based on what we were improvising a little bit or the explorations or exercises we were using to come up with stuff and then um so that was all for the battle of the bards and then when we found out we got to do this full length version um we had some conversations about where we thought this could go what some of our research was and he took that off and just like ran with it and wrote this really incredible story that i'm really super excited to uh, be working with it's both touching and funny and and weird uh, all the things that <laughs> that I really love about um, about theater, and he's just been really generous in the whole process. Like, if we want to sort of take it off in a slightly different tangent or explore some things, he'll come in and and do some editing and um, to allow us for that exploration. So it's been a really uh, a really great process for me working first time with an actual playwright like by my side. Tell me about your cast and what you were looking for. Because I'm guessing you were looking for people who were a bit more collaborative, perhaps, than a traditional rehearsal process. Yeah, we have a lot of... Um, we have a lot of... Um, I think people are coming in at it from different, various angles. And so, you know, we have folks, some of them are, are really into gaming. <laughs> so they've been kind of like our on-site dramaturgs <laughs> as the process is happening. Like I said, is I'm not super into gaming. So I'm like, I think there's something like this. I remember playing Mario Kart. And they're like, no, no, no. Um, so they're constantly correcting me um, and, and edifying me to more current games. Um, and then we have folks who are really... Um, who are um, movement-based, you know, have a strong movement background. Um, are the woman, Beth Pollock, who's playing Lucrece, she comes in from a Shakespeare background and how to kind of modernize that as well. And then uh, Liv, who's playing, who's sort of like the main character, the actor, Elizabeth Rimmer, who's playing her, uh, comes from an improv background. Um, so everybody's, you know sort of outside skills are kind of being woven into it. Absolutely. As well. And it's kind of, it's a really exciting collaborative process because of that and those ideas. Um, and it's not just on the stage, like the design team has also been really great in thinking about how do we bring this, you know, world that's reality and uh, fantasy into, onto the stage. Who are some of your other cast members? Let's let's hear the full the full, the full list. Yeah. Oh gosh, I, um, let me make sure I can remember. <laughs> so um, we have a rather like, there's about ten. There are ten people in the cast. Um, we have Elizabeth Rammer, She's playing Liv. Jeb Brown. He's playing Tarquinius. Um, Lily Cohen is playing Liv's um, girlfriend. And Amy Decker, Amy Decker, Christine Lang, and Maddie Noonan are playing the narrator. So we're kind of hearkening back to that chorus, sure. the Greek chorus kind of thing. Um, and Beth Pollock, like I said, is um, playing Lucrece. Um, we have Bjorn Whitney, who is playing 
Collatine, um, her her husband in the sort of original video game storyline, and then uh, Ben Simons is playing uh, one of uh, Liv's well Liv's boss, which is uh, Trent, and we have Lara Steele who's playing one of Liv's co-workers. Lara Steele, uh, uh, yeah, um, Mia. Pardon, Lara Steele is playing one of Liv's co-workers, Mia. Got it. It's a full gamut. Yeah. And so you're running March 4th through the 19th mm-hmm. in the Ballard Underground space. Yes. Where's the best place for folks to get tickets for the show? Um, they can visit us at ghostlighttheatricals.org and get all the information they could possibly need at that website. Or they could go straight to ghostlight.strangertickets.com and go directly for their tickets there. So check this show out, folks. There's also an industry night on... Monday, March 7th, uh, which is Pay What You Can. It looks like Thursdays are also Pay What You Can, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. So it's going to be accessible to a lot of folks. Yeah. Do you think that, do you, in terms of like reaching out to folks to come see the show, yes, of course, theater friends and friends of friends are going to come. Do you think that it's going to appeal to some of the folks in the tech industry in this neck of the woods? I'd love for people in the tech industry. I think it's such a huge growing um, growing economy here in Seattle, that it would be great to have those um, those voices in the room and perhaps have a discussion about how how the arts and tech and um, gender relations <laughs> all matter in those industries. Because I think a lot of the things that, um, even the tech industry, it's not just women in the industry. I think a lot of just uh, diversity in the industry is also sure. a larger issue as well. Um, and it's not just a matter of, like, it goes into the layers of, you know, who has access to technology and access to education when it comes to technology. Um, and so, yeah, I think it would be, and I don't, like I said, is I'm not a gamer and this story sort of, this sort of, the story fascinates me. Um, so I think it's, it's something, there is definitely something for everyone in it at all ages. Awesome. Do you want to? I'm kind of interested to dig into the juxtaposition of rehearsing a show, which is this very intimate, not tech, I mean, hopefully you don't have your phone in the rehearsal hall, or a lot of times there's not cameras, it's really about being present and building an ensemble and listening to other people, but you're coming at it through the lens of this story about technology, Mm -hmm. where we're becoming, we, we feel possibly more connected but physically we're not as connected Mm -hmm. as we once were did you i mean did those two themes like blend into each other at all or i'm just i'm interested to sort of know your take on that um yeah i think that was one of the things that sort of fascinated me because it is a fringe company so as far as our just to be um frank as far as our like technological capacity and budget and all that stuff goes there's not a whole lot we can do. We do have video, um, you know, as part of the show. We have lights and all that, right, right. <laughs> you know, all of those things. But one of my challenges was like, how do you tell this story in a way that's not necessarily um, tech heavy, or you know, how do you do special effects when you don't have CGI? Right. Um, you know, the story would be 
very different if it were made into a movie, I think. Um, but my, what I love about the human body is it can, and, and the human imagination, you know, and creativity, you can sort of take the audience, they'll go with you in theater. Right. Um, you know, uh, one example, um, that comes to mind, at least for me personally, is the play War Horse. Um, right. Yes. You know, and so... There's, they don't bring a real horse on stage. It's done with this puppet, and you see the six opera, six or eight operators that are are making this horse move and come to life, and you forget about them when you're in that special Absolutely. space of the theater. You know, when the lights go down and uh, around the audience and the lights come up on stage, um, you start going into that. Your brain helps you along with that and I remember being in like the big room in uh, the big theater uh, I think it was yeah Lincoln Theater I had gone to see it and when the horse gets injured I yelled out no <laughs> you were so invested because you become so invested in it and yeah. so I think there's a really special thing that um, ensembles can create on stage and telling those stories so yeah, you know, it's, I think we did some work in kind of having an ensemble sync up together and kind of have that ensemble building moment because a lot of the folks hadn't worked together before. This was one of their first times working at Ghost Light or with, uh, um, with me personally or as a director. So, Right on. Well, let's, let's talk about you more as oh, a director. No. <laughs> I want to know. I'm, no. I'm always interested in learning folks uh theatrical trajectories so did you first enter into uh work in the theater as an actor um yeah i you know i think i started off as a i started doing theater when i was like in second grade you know theater theater camp i was playing the rabbi in Fiddler on the 20 minute version of Fiddler on the Roof first theater oh camp. Oh my god, that's amazing. I still remember my line right. for that. What, um, let's, let's have it. Let's have it. May God bless and keep the czar far away from us. That was my, that was my debut, Bravo. I believe. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I absolutely started um, way back when. Um, my background tended, but I also was a dancer, so I did the ta- ballet, tap, and jazz, and all of that good stuff growing up um, and then entered college and did um, more modern sure. improvisational kinds of work. Where did you go to school? Uh, Allegheny College. It's in northwestern Pennsylvania. Okay. It's really, really small. Um, and then uh, started doing, exploring a little bit of um, not so much just acting, but like directing and doing movement kind of coaching and things like um, not necessarily. I don't like to co- call it choreography ne- necessarily because it's not dance in the traditional way, but sure. um, stylized movement for shows and things like that. Um, and so I've kind of always done acting and directing um, parallel to one another. Um, uh, after college, I well, I grew up in Maryland, but I moved to the D.C. area and got involved in theater there um, and started devising. Uh, shows in the D.C. area for their fringe festivals. So we'd kind of have a group of us come together and come up with something that we wanted right to devise on. around. Yeah. So one of those, uh, one of the first shows, which I'm actually going to be remounting um, shortly, is was called the Juliet Project. 
Um, oh. And it's going to be part of the first folio exhibit. There will be two performances at the library as part of it. And that's taking letters that people have written from Juliet of Verona, or to Juliet of Verona, kind of like a Dear Abby sort of thing, um, and combining them with scenes from Romeo and Juliet as sort of the answer to those letters. That and Sounds fantastic. Um, yeah, I, it's it's one that's sort of dear to my heart. <laughs> it's just a little short one, so if you find yourself at the library on March uh, Tuesday, March 29th, around lunchtime, it'll be a, about a half-hour uh, performance, and then again, it'll be following their educators uh, symposium on April 2nd uh, at 4 o'clock, I believe, um, there. So we've, we did that. We did another show called Iconicity, which was taking kind of iconic photographs and combining them with people's um, sort of researched or found text around those mm. um, photographs or people's own personal um, connections with sure. them and putting a show around that. Um, and another one we had, another one that I've done um, was a solo show called Flora Dora, which was a um, story about a pair of twins. One of them, it's based on a true story, or loosely based on a true story about a pair of twins. Um, one of them died, and she excavated her sister after the funeral and kept her in her <laughs> bedroom um, and sort of treated <laughs> Uh, would read life to her. Is, life is stranger than fiction, right? <laughs> and, you know, I'm an only child, so I sort of take things that, yeah. that fascinate me where I'm like, hmm, you know, what is that connection? And it seemed, you know, when you first read that story, it seemed really weird, but then you realize, like, it was just she really felt the loss of her sister, and it sort of makes sense. Um, How long did she do that before she got caught? Oh, did she ever get caught? Well, she did get caught because that's how it was in the, you know, I found the the, news. In the news. It was in this little tiny paper, you know. Um, I forget how long. It was a while, though, because she also had, I think, I didn't explore that story, but like I said, it was was loosely based on the story, but I guess she also had her husband in the guest room, or in the guest house out. Her dead husband? Yes, her dead husband. What is this American horror story? <laughs> I, I absolutely love the fact that her sister had like the guest room in the house, and her husband, her husband was, was, in the guest in, house. was in the guest house. He didn't, be, he didn't get to be in the actual house. I see. So, what? It's. Would you say that you're drawn to sort of darker material? Um. Is that your aesthetic? Yeah, maybe. I think so. I, I'd say so. I probably. I probably tend towards that way. Um, it helps me work through my own <laughs> issues and <laughs> um, finding the humor of humor and heart to things that might seem darker, I guess. I mean, speaking as an only child myself, I think part of that too is not growing up with other beings approximately your age to constantly. Um, uh, stimulate you, mm-hmm. and so I would argue that the imagination of only children is a lot more well practiced by the time you hit high school or college because you had to spend so many hours entertaining yourself. Uh, right? I mean, I would, you know, I'd have shows whenever my parents had dinner parties and things like that. If they if they had another um, person, you know, kid about my age, we immediately put on. A show. We're going into rehearsal yeah. right <laughs> while now. They were, while they were 
chatting I in the living room. I hope you've worn comfortable clothing. <laughs> exactly. So how do you go? How do you get from Washington D.C. to Washington State? Um, I went. Well, I lived in D.C. for hmm, I forget how many years now, but for a while, and then. Um, um, my husband's Belgian, and so we got married and moved to Belgium for a, for a little bit okay. of time. And then when <laughs> we decided to come back to the States, I just started looking for jobs around, um, jobs back in kind of the East Coast area and wasn't super excited about it. And so I started stretching my, my um, uh, radius of where I might apply to and ended up applying for a job here in Seattle. And we moved here sight unseen and have really loved it ever since. So... I've been spending the last, I guess, three and a half years kind of uh, getting to know the theater community and the arts community as a whole and really enjoying it. Compare and contrast the arts community here to D.C. I'd be interested in seeing from coast to coast what what would you say similarities, differences? Um, I'd say, like, the biggest difference is I think there's a lot more... Um, fringe smaller theater kind of doing weird exciting new things like the support for new plays is much more spread out here in Seattle um, or new work and you know exploratory sure. new work in general might be a little bit more um, one of the however this is you know I still feel like I have a lot to learn in the community here um, but it, but there's kind of a leap between where that smaller fringe theater is happening to where there's like larger established, and you don't have as much like of that right. middle ground theater happening. Um, and you know, I think looking back at some of the history of other of some of the theater companies that have like come and gone here in Seattle, that that's sort of where the strata of of companies that have kind of disappeared before I've, before I made my debut on the scene, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, I, th- I think with, um, DC, you have a little bit more of different level theater companies from like small, medium. Is there more of a large. ladder, would you say? I'd like- say there's a little bit more of a ladder right now. And if, you know, I haven't been there for a while, but at least my experience when we were there, um, there was a little bit more of a ladder there. I don't think there was as much support like year round for fringe shows. Like they had a really great fringe festival, the Capital um, Capital Fringe Festival, which a lot of you know the devised work that I did was really really supportive um, of the of the new work. But that was sure. kind of like the time of year. One time of the year, and then that you do this the experimental, fringe, yeah. right? The fringe work. bears go back to your caves. And, you and I know that yeah. they've been doing work to kind of expand that so that it has more programming, like throughout the year. Um, but that was kind of the biggest difference that I had uh, coming in, coming to Seattle, and sort of navigating. You know, as a newcomer, where do you audition? Where how do you, do you how do you enter yeah. in those things? And so I've been getting more into um, new, you know world premieres and things like that. Does that, would you say that you found that that excites you more than traditional or classical scripts? Um, I'd say it, it, they both itch different spots, you know? Sure. Like, um, the past year I was working with Green Stage for their Much Ado About Nothing and touring, um, touring all the parks with that, and that's, you know really well-known. Were you acting? Yeah, I was doing Beatrice for 
for that. And Shut up. <laughs> That's awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. She's a, she's my so with, with literature Kate, with Kate, soulmate. Yeah, Kate Ager. Um, different one. I think Never mind. Different That's one. a different play. She, she was in As You Like It, which is a completely different yeah. play, but those two plays are really I, similar in my head for some reason. So ignore that uh, <laughs> little okay. um, spindle that I went off on, and please continue, Ms. Beatrice. Yeah. So you know, I love. I love going back to those texts and finding new things that are exciting and why we're still performing them and why right. do people come still come see them. Have you done that that role before or that play I before? did back in college and I you know, I think she's a little bit of I discovered then she's a little bit of my soulmate and I was like I'd love to play her again, you know, but it's one of those things where um, when you're playing a role in college you think you have all the all, all the corners and facets. Oh, yeah. And like, oh. You got it down. <laughs> and then you're an adult, you're like, like I have no, so I... much to learn. And I think it was one of those moments of, of um, just connecting with her again. So I was glad I got to revisit, you know, an old friend um, for that. Um, but yeah, you know, I like the, I like, I think new stuff is, um, I think, for the most part, I probably play on either end. It's like brand new stuff or the really old, stuff. Or really old stuff, and like figuring out the solutions of how do you make this new stuff work, you know, while it's still in that sort of nitty gritty draft phase, and right. or it's old text, and you're sort of working with the problem of how do you make this relevant, like how or why is this still relevant, and sure. figuring out that that issue. What what are you looking forward to next? Like either theme, like specific productions or themes to explore as a theater artist. Um, for me right now, I have this. I, I don't have anything lined up, but I'm sort of thinking about going back to the table to kind of create a either a one person or a two person show, um, something a little bit more intimate. Um, I've been reading up on. Um, not doing a whole lot of heavy research for it, but I think I'd like to, um, on, they're called the Night Witches. It's this, um, during World War II, uh, Russia, the, there weren't enough Russian pilots, and so they started um, recruiting female pilots oh, wow. um, to do reconnaissance missions, except they weren't given really expensive like they weren't given the more They're expensive. Given the crappy planes. Planes. They were given the crappy planes that were like wrapped in paper. And so when they flew through the air um, at night, the paper rattled and it made this like witchy noise, oh. like women on a broom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think it popped up in my Facebook feed a little bit a while ago, and I was like, "Oh, I'd love to look at this." And I, I think there's a, my husband is, has been. Uh, fascinated by planes. He was an air traffic controller at some point, and now he works at SeaTac for the airlines. And, okay. Um, so he has a... He loves flight and history and all of that sort of thing. So um, kind of... I've, I've started loving it <laughs> by osmosis or sure. something. And so I find it a really fascinating story, and since we have those you know, the connection and, and maybe looking at more just like women in flight in general, um, of those stories that haven't been explored as much, especially because of the yeah. history here in Seattle of like flight. Um, sure. 
connections yeah. to flight here. So night that, witches, yeah, <laughs> night witches coming soon. Uh, <laughs> in some incarnation, I don't know how soon. Like <laughs> we'll see. But that's the that's something that I'm doing research on to see how do we tell that story? Is it possible to tell that story? Oh, what advice do you have for emerging theater artists or someone who is trying to figure out how to get their foot in the door with Seattle theater or just theater in general? Yeah, I would say just like get out there and, and introduce yourself, um, and volunteer or audition or, you know, help out. I think, you know, with so many, um, smaller companies, they really rely on the kindness of strangers (laughs) sometimes, um, or volunteers and things like that. And so, um, I know personally as an introvert, it's hard to do, but I think once you just sort of get your foot in the door, even just that one opportunity, you start finding other connections. Um, especially if you're doing something you love, um, you start finding other people who love it as well. So it's not really original advice, but sometimes you just need that reminder to like, you can't just be alone at home in your room saying, nobody need to. You need to uh, hustle a little bit. Yeah, and if it, you know, if you're not getting the things that you want, then start finding ways to produce the things that you wanted to try and do. You know, I think that's one. You know, we were talking about what is, um, what's the difference between Seattle, and I think they really are open to like that new work. You know, the Seattle Fringe Festival is happening right now, which is all new. or mostly new work or exploratory work. And so finding venues or groups like that, or, you know, like I said, Battle of the Bards participate. They're always looking for people to participate in those. And you just kind of get your foot in the door in various little ways. Absolutely. Well, this has been amazing. Everyone (laughs) go see From Kings to Controllers. March 4th through the 19th at Ballard Underground. Visit ghostlighttheatricals.org or ghostlight... Is that dot? Yeah. Stranger Tickets? Dot Stranger Tickets. Dot com. And we'll have both of those links in the episode description. (laughs) Jennifer, thank you so much for coming and being a cast. This was a... Being a cast? Dear (laughs) Lord. It's it's a two-person play we're putting on today. You need to wake up. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast, Um, and congratulations for this new show. Thanks so much. It was great to be here.